Listener Production. G'day, it's Rusty here, all set for part two of my podcast with long-time respected McLaren F1 team member Bob McMurray. Now, if you haven't heard part one, jump back to the library and enjoy. From his early years in a mini and a bit of rallying, to life on the road for the team driving trucks from GP to GP. His diverse roles within the famous squad meant he became a trusted figure, someone who could keep the media at bay and who could take valued corporate guests into the heart of the pit garage to help them really understand its workings. We begin part two with his insights on working with the late, great Ayrton Senna. Once again, Ayrton became... We came, became quite close with Ayrton. The, the era with Prost and Senna in the, in, in the team was an exciting era. Um, you know, they were such that they became such bitter enemies that one would go into the bathroom of the motorhome longer than necessary before the race so the other one couldn't get in there <laughs> um, and all that sort of thing. But Ayrton, Ayrton played the emotional game with everybody, whereas Alain played the political game with everybody. Um, Ayrton used to come here to New Zealand and stay with us uh, on his way back to Brazil after the Adelaide Grand Prix, which was the best Grand Prix ever. Um, and, he, yeah, he, we used to take him out in a helicopter or take him around the place and all that sort of thing. There were some lovely pictures of him uh, at home. My mother-in-law at the time hated him, never did like him, and she died not liking him, so I don't know why we haven't figured that out. Um, yeah, Ayrton was... Uh, was great, and the motor, my wife was looking after the motorhome at the time, which was a kind of a big plush American thing, and it was for Ron and, and the drivers only. And uh, he used to sit at the front of the motorhome and read a passage of the Bible with only Sean there, then kiss her on the forehead, and then go to the garage to race every single time. Um, he he yeah he was a really nice guy. I mean, other people knew him closely as well, Joe Ramirez uh, in the team, and and some others, obviously Ron. Um, but he he was one of those guys as actually a lot of them if you are if you are part of their little circle if they trust you they trust you implicitly and that's where i come back to loyalty because if you cross those guys or you you you're un- disloyal in any way you never speak to them again um because they they don't seem to have too many people they can trust and it's um you know i'm yeah i'm i'm trying not to um um, no, but I think make you un- out my own. Uh, no, but I think you I'm not important at all. But it, you know, it's just the way they are. Mm, yeah, I think you know, underscoring that loyalty, and you know, in their world, I can I can appreciate why th- that is so valuable to them all. Because because you they must end up surrounded by all sorts of different oh, people, yeah. and you can't trust all of them. No, so, no, no, mm. no. I mean, there are so many sycophants that, mm. that just are attracted to them. Um, and, you know, the, myself and two other guys, we used to almost act as bodyguards for Ayrton because in Japan especially he couldn't walk 10 metres without being physically Mobbed. abused mm. oh, wow. Um, wow. Uh, by people grabbing him and all that sort of stuff. Mm. So we, it was a bit like a boxer, you know, going mm. through a crowd. He'd put his, finger, his hands on my shoulders and we'd barge our way through with two other guys. Cruel and all sorts of things, but you just couldn't stop and say hello to everybody. Mm. And then there were the sycophants that did have paddock passes and always, you know, slap them on the back. Hey, Adam, how are you going? Um, I had no idea who they were. So, 
yeah, but it was a little bit like Alan Prost, but Alan was better at handling that sort of thing. Mm. Uh, yeah, that's all. So, what was the key difference? I mean, you talk about you know, you know politics versus passion. I, I guess b- before, as drivers, what what set them apart? What was the you know in, in, in your observation? In your observation, I, that would take um, more than more time than we've got, I think. But mm. if you can put it in a nutshell, it and Alan Prost always used to reckon that you should win the race at the slowest possible speed. Mm. Ayrton always used to drive as if he wanted to win the race yesterday <laughs> and go as fast as possible. And I think that was the greatest difference in their driving. Mm. Ayrton was um, a pole position master. Uh, just look at YouTube and look at the, the laps of Monaco and other places where he's changing gear and driving, just absolutely master of it. He used to sit in the garage watch all the times go up and he'd put a, have a, put a time up and you'd wait and you'd wait and you'd wait until it was maybe 30 seconds before pit lane was going to close and he'd go out and he'd blow, blow pole position straight away. Um, he Intense, I suppose, mm. much more intense. Alan mm. was intense but in a different way. I suppose the difference is Alan was French and, and Ayrton was Brazilian. Mm. Knowing that, you know, it's the, the whole nationalistic attitude Jeez. between the two of them. Yeah. I don't know if it's true. There was a story of legend about a, a an incident in a helicopter and a, and a briefcase being yeah, turfed Gerhard out. Berger is, at Monza. Is this true? Absolutely. Absolutely. Tell, Absolutely. Us, tell us that yarn. <laughs> well, they used to fly from the Villa d'Este in, in, um, up on Lake Como to Monza. And as they were approaching the um, the... <laughs> The uh, landing space, they were must, I suppose, two, three hundred feet high. Yeah. Um, Gerhard Perger put his hand down and grabbed Ayrton's um, beautiful pigskin briefcase and slung it out the window. <laughs> and all these papers came shedding down as people picking them up. Oh, yeah, it was, it was hilarious, really. And then um, Gerhard Berger also put on Ayrton's uh, passport photo. Um, a rather rude photo, a completely <laughs> rude photo, changed Ayrton's picture out. Ayrton was stuck at the um, customs for ages. Ex- they wouldn't explain. let him in. Yeah. But then, um, uh, the, then the, uh, once at the factory, this briefcase thing was going on between him and Ron Dennis and, and Gerhard Berger quite a long time. Um, and Gerhard uh, Ayrton wouldn't let his briefcase out of his hands, so we got to the factory one day and it was Ron's turn to play a trick on Ayrton. Um, and uh, at the factory, he got the boys to make up a little cage. And somehow he secreted Ayrton's briefcase away and it made sure that Ron hadn't damaged the briefcase. No, 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 your briefcase is safe in my office. So he gave it back to him in a metal cage that they welded together <laughs> with no locks on it. <laughs> it just welded up. So he gave him his briefcase back like this. Uh, yeah, there were lots of stories like that, especially awesome. between Gerhard and, um, and yeah. Ayrton. Gerhard was a breath of fresh air for Ayrton. He li- they, it lightened him up completely. It really did uh, bring a different perspective to Ayrton Senna's um, Seriousness. He he could see funny sides yeah. uh, of things all of a sudden. The the footnote to the briefcase helicopter story, I think, was it's and you're too serious. Like that's the whole reason he threw the briefcase yeah. out of the the yep. helicopter, wasn't yeah. it? Like like yeah. let go and, and yeah. enjoy life. I mean, kind it, of thing, we, you know? we got. I think it was at the end of the year. We got to Estoril and we'd won the championship. And um, there was a team party, and Gerhard beat bet Ron and um, Ayrton that he could drink more. Um, whiskey, dimple, dimple yeah. whiskey or yeah. whatever it is, than they could, uh, which was fine. But um, Gerhard had got to the place before that in the afternoon and changed one bottle out uh, for cold tea, effectively, or something else. <laughs> so he gave everybody else a sip. But Ron's onto this, so he swapped, but he believed Gerhard would do this. So he went there after this and swapped the bottles around just to make sure. But Gerhard had paid the guy in the restaurant to tap the Be bottle on his side. On 
So, you know, anyway, it came back to, to um, Gerhard that he was drinking the tea and he knew he was and, and Ron and Ayrton couldn't cope with anything else. I've never seen Ayrton send a drunk, but I saw him drunk that night. I it love was, it. Uh, yeah. I mean, he was an, uh, Michael won seven. Um, Lewis has won seven so far as you and I talk. Mm. Um, you know, uh, Ayrton only chalked up the three, but he was for me and for many listening an enormously special driver. And there are there are aspects, very sadly, because he passed that we would we would love to have seen a real ongoing head to head with Michael Schumacher battle between he and Ayrton. That would have been something yeah. to savor, wouldn't it? Yeah, I've, yeah, absolutely. There's mm. there's no. No denying that whatsoever. We did get a battle between Mika Hakkinen and, and Schumacher um, later on with the famous, you know, going up Spa Hill with Ricardo Zonta in the middle and one guy mm. going either side of him, which uh, spoke to Ricardo Zonta after that. And he he said, he closed his eyes and went straight. He didn't know what was going to happen. Um, but, yeah, the battle between Senna and Schumacher would have been a spectacular one, I think, because mm. they were similarly intense drivers. Uh, but in with different styles. So, you know, if that had happened, uh, who knows? Who knows? This has been fasc- fascinating. I want to keep bouncing through some names mm. if we can. It sounds like we're name dropping here, but I but I love it. You mentioned Mika Hakkinen. Yeah. What was he like? Uh, once again, Mika um, used to come and stay with us here in New Zealand a couple of times. He's he's been here. Well, was here. Um, he was. He started off as a test driver and was test driver for a long time. Um, and he started off his racing career in uh, Estoril uh, when um, young Andretti was... Uh, Michael, yeah. You know, he went. Yep. Um, and the next race was Estoril. And they said to Mika, you know, you've got to drive this weekend. And he up-qualified it in Senna. So we figured then that he was pretty good. Now, he had to wait quite some time to get a first race win uh, because of well, the way things were. The car wasn't that good at the time and all that sort of stuff. So... Um, but when he did, and once again, uh, Mika has a very had a very very tight bunch of people around him. Um, it it was basically his manager Didier Cotton, uh, his wife at the time, and um, uh, one guy who is um, uh, let's see Raikkonen's trainer right up until he um, left uh, Alpha, um, Mark Arnold and. Mark Arnold was uh, Mika's uh, trainer all that way through as well. So, yeah, he had a very tight bunch of people around him, but Mika was, once again, just a, a loyal, wonderful guy. I mean, coming here when we, we used to put a lamb on a spit and he had and his wife, Eria, had never seen anything like this and he refused to touch it. <laughs> and this big lamb going round and round and round, he thought it was disgusting. And I got a wonderful photograph of him trying, tasting a bit of meat and he picked it up and tasted it and I went away and came back and just, you know, carve a bit more off, and he's in there with his fingers and hands doing chunks of the meat <laughs> off. You know, so yeah, it was good. I mean, but we had dietitians all the way through, hmm. and one of the funny, Nicky Lauder, for instance, was our driver for a long time. Um, he had uh, Willie Dungle as his trainer after the big fire and the accident and all sorts of things. And Willie had a training place, um, and he used to feed uh, Nicky a piece of dried black bread and a glass of water before he went out. And Nicky said, yeah, I, I eat it, okay, I eat it like this. So Willie used to go away to do something else. The first thing that had to happen was uh, Sean, my wife, he'd come upstairs with a ham sandwich, two, um, a double <laughs> shot black coffee <laughs> and a cheese sandwich. And he'd scoff all this down and he'd see Willie Dungle outside before he went race. You yes, finished yes. that? <laughs> yeah, 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 it was good, Willie. Thank you very much. You know. 
We we miss him, don't we? I mean, he was in a, 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 a the few interviews that I that I did with him, just an enormously straight shooting guy. Um, clearly, did did the Rush movie was it was it an accurate portrayal of I, him? Do you think? I saw the Rush movie with um, five six McLaren mechanics of the time uh-huh. at the time. Yep. Mark Scott, um, Harold, anyway, the guys. We watched it together, and everybody thought, "What a bunch of." bollocks and i'm sorry it was oh, just wow. a rubbish film but then we sat back and thought now hang on a second it, it's not a documentary mm. it's been made into a film yes. so we watched it again two yeah. days two nights later as a film not as a documentary yeah and we thought it was fantastic okay simply because it, it, james hunt never raced against nicky Lauda in a formula three car in crystal palace mm. never together mm. but there was that there um james never punched out any press people mm. N- never okay. didn't happen okay. so all that sort of thing was introduced to making the movie yeah, 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 so yeah. if you look mm. at it as a documentary um it ain't yeah. but if you look at it as a movie that publicized the the excitement between the two the the differences between the two the friendship and the racing okay fine it was okay one thing i've got to say is that the remarkable actress who played nikki Lauder's wife mm. Was a dead ringer. We thought it was the same girl. Wow! I mean, but this is thirty years later. later. Wouldn't it yeah, yeah. It's absolute dead ringer. And the two actors um, were, after you'd seen them for half an hour on movie, you could accept the fact they were who they were. Yeah. So from that point of view, it was good. But the first viewing with all the guys that were there in 1976, when the championship was decided in Japan, it was rubbish. Absolute rubbish. Because we were looking at it as a. Um, as a documentary, say. I, I, I actually think you, you make a very good point for, for people to distinguish in that way when they're watching any kind of motor racing documentary or movie. Yeah, and you to, cannot and to, make an exciting mm. movie of motor racing, which is the most exciting sport in the world. You can't do it. It's like that thing in, in Le Mans where they're going down the back straight together and the two guys are looking at each other and they're like this and suddenly one changes another gear and yeah. goes ahead. Yeah. You think, well, <laughs> hey, you, you <laughs> don't happen. do that. You can't do that. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I have a, a quick little fun story. The the, uh, the actor who played Nicky Lauder in, in the movie, I got to interview at one stage and uh, he'd been trying to get hold of Nicky to spend some time with him, to get into character, to really understand the nuances of, of Nicky Lauder. And eventually his phone rings and it's like six in the morning and, and it's Nicky on the other end and he goes, uh, Nicky goes, okay, I suppose we have to meet now. Uh, just bring hand luggage to Vienna. That way, if we don't like each other, you can just piss back off to where you came from. <laughs> yeah, okay. Yeah, I could, hey, yeah I could, that could be a quote direct from the man. Yeah, 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 right. really good. Couple more to couple more to bounce through driver-wise. Yeah. David Coulthard, who's still a part of the, the Channel 4 coverage and so on. Yeah, I, uh, David Coulthard was a bit misunderstood. I think he was, uh, it, it was more dramatic than he should have been. He okay. was more poor me than he should have been. Um, I liked him, uh, but he, I never really got that close to him. He was never easily get closeable to, okay. uh, from my point of view. Anyway, I I always felt he was um, uh, how can I say a bit Andy Murrayish in tennis, okay. shall we say, a bit melodramatic uh, sometimes. Okay, he had a plane crash and all that sort of stuff. I know and climbed out quite well. The story about the dog was quite good as well. They had a little dog with him at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, it's his girlfriend at the time's dog. And once the plane crashed and all sorts of things, they were scrabbling aside trying to get out and the dog was going the wrong way. So you know, David picked him up by the scruff of the neck and actually kicked him like a rugby ball out of the plane to sure get yeah, him out in sure a hurry. Yeah. But, um, yeah, I... I uh, 
I think he's yeah, it was a bit over melodramatic at the time. That's all. Good drivers, no mm. doubt about it. Mm. And he was overshadowed by Ron's desire for Mika Hakkinen to win a race. Okay. And to continue winning races. So David always got the impression and gave the impression that he was a number two. Well, you get to be a number one by winning more races. Simple as that. Why did the Formula One drivers stop and have a nap? They were getting tired. Sorry. A couple closer to home. Uh, your home as in New Zealand. Scott Dixon. Uh, Scott Dixon, what can I say? We, I've been to Indy uh, making TV shows and all sorts of things with Scott and he's never been anything nicer, uh, anything more than a nice guy to deal with and a practical guy and a friendly guy. Um, and what a superb driver. It's somebody I wish that his chance in Formula One driving that BMW Williams, mm. I wish that hadn't have happened. I wish he'd got a better chance with a better team and I think he would have been a better driver in Formula One. I really do think he, he had a future in Formula One. But the future he's carved in IndyCar racing, I mean, you know, one of the best sportsmen yeah. in America mm. in terms of pay, uh, I'd settle for that as well. But I think the Formula One spur might still be there, might still have been there and I wish he had had a better chance to get into it. Shane Van Gisbergen. SVG. Um, it was here that I first really saw him drive. He was driving a Toyota Racing Series car in the first first or second season, I can't remember. And it was pretty obvious then he was going to be a bit of a star. Now, yeah. he, is a, he is a misunderstood guy. I agree. Um, he is, uh, I, I, I believe, quite shy. Um, at the time when he was driving Toyota Racing Series cars, he was... Uh, he wasn't um, he wasn't outgoing at all, not in the least. Uh, but you could see he had talent, and you could see he was going to be too big for a, a single seater car as he was growing. Um, and ever since we've, I've had a radio show with a guy called Darcy Waldegrave, and we found him. Yep, no problem. He'll talk and be quite happy to do so. Mm. And he tells the truth. Yes. Now I don't mean telling the truth by not lying, but he tells it how it is. Mm. Right. Well, you must know Rusty. You've yes. spoken to him. Yeah. He tells what he thinks is is it, and people can see that on television. That's Shane. Mm. He ain't no. He's he, no advert for another Shane. No. That's the Shane you're seeing. Is the Shane you're getting? Is the Shane that there is? Yeah, I, I have massive respect for him in that regard, and I actually feel like sometimes uh, colleagues of yours and mine on the media side uh, don't do themselves any favours because if they actually went in, connected with the bloke, ask good motor racing questions, which which appeals to him. You'll get a different conversation. Yeah, you know, that, that, completely. That's, yeah, yeah, yeah. Don't try and look for an angle with him. No, just ask a question. Yeah, yeah he'll tell you to go away, or he'll tell you the truth, or yeah. whatever. Yeah. No, it's honest. Final one. Um, before your time ended with the, the McLaren squad in Formula One, you got to witness and look after a young guy in karting who has now gone on to win seven world championships mm -hmm. in Lewis Hamilton. Tell mm -hmm. us about that. Well, he was um, taken under the wing of McLaren Mercedes, as, as everybody knows, when he told Ron, I'm going to drive for you one day, that famous mm. story. Um, and when he started driving karts, then he was helped out, which which annoys me a little bit because he keeps telling people that he's, um, you know, came up from nothing and he didn't have any money and all the rest of it. He was pretty well funded through that karting period by Mercedes or McLaren. He mm -hmm. was kind of looked after. Um, okay, n not rich or not mm. royally, but... There was a backstop. Um, and he was great. I mean, he was clear, obvious mm. that he was going to be uh, a, a champion driver somehow, mm. somewhere. Um, 
and uh, going to karting meetings and watching him operate and his father operate, they mm. were they were a tight couple, and mm. they used to really. Oh, what can I say about him? He was clearly quick. Um, we weren't there to try and deviate from what he was doing and introduce him big time or anything, just to keep an eye on mm. and just to see how he was doing and making sure that he was doing what Ron thought was the right thing to do. And mm. that's what happened. Yep. He's yeah. not everyone's cup of tea. I, I, no. I, I mean, I, I think, you know, he's achieved some unbelievable things because of clearly of the talent you've just described. And he does take, whether we like it or not, he does take Formula One into a different space in an audience sense, doesn't he? With his, uh, you know, his uh, his connection with music, his uh, love of fashion and things like that away from the, the mm-hmm. track and yeah. more. He, he takes Formula One and Formula One people away from the accepted idea of a racing driver, mm. you know, like some... The perception French, of yeah, them. Yeah, 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 fashion uh, icon with a you know flowing locks and all that sort of thing. He's what I appreciate about him, apart from his driving, and I think he's, if not the, he's certainly one of the best drivers uh, ever, um, and that's clear and obvious. Uh, if he wants to live his life by being a golfer, by being a fashion singer, uh, fashion artist, by being a singer, by whatever, I don't care. That's he doesn't criticize my way of life, um, and I don't care what he does when he gets in a car and he does the business. I'm, I'm in the business of motor racing, he's a motor racer and he's a racer, and that's the best thing. Really, all these people that say, oh, Look at his checkered trousers, look at this, that, and the other, mate. I don't know if you're 50, 60 years of age, what did you dress like when you were 20? Exactly. Drain pipes, bell bottoms, mm. mm. um, teddy boys. Come on, you know, mm. let the guy's got his own, um aura that he wants to, um, what's the word, expose and, and, and uh, commercialise, I mm, suppose. Mm. But that's his aura. Mm. I, I don't understand all the criticism. Every, uh, criticism. Everybody can laugh at him and do whatever they like, but he's living his life, yes. not yours. No. You're not living his life. Yeah. So give it up. Yeah. Uh, much has been made of the final round of the 2021 championship. As you and I talk here, he's been – silent on social media lots of people have question marked will he come back we're in a new era of of cars for for 2022 um, firstly what do you think about the new cars and and I, I can't see him i can't see him leaving can you uh well first of all what do i think about the new cars i don't know yet i've mm-hmm. talked to various people who are into designing them and they think everybody will converge on a similar design after one year anyway. okay okay they need to be they need to do things that they haven't done. They need, first of all, to get rid of the stupid front wings with all the business on them and mm. the stupid things that are hanging off. Go backwards to go forwards. To, to the, the, kind of, the kind of cars you, you reminisced about before or some of those elements of those cars. Hey? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, I mean, if they're worried about overtaking, then give them one front wing and mm. one rear wing mm. and you've got a choice of maybe three, but take all those stupid stuff or I don't care about it. I don't care for that sort of thing. It's ruining motor racing. Mm-hmm. So if the 2022 three cars are, are better um, for racing, then I'll like them, but mm. I, I suspect not. Um, the sorry, what was your next? My my, my next question. My next question was: um, Will Lewis come back? Um, I I think he would have done, and I think he still will. Mm. But do you know the bigger mistake? First of all, what happened on the, at the end of that race? Um, if that had been a race, this will take a few minutes to explain. Mm-hmm. If that had been a race in the middle of the season, that would have been under normal practice, in which case it would have finished under a yellow flag mm-hmm. or a safety car. Mm-hmm. Um, by 
by making it the last race and then changing accepted practice that has been accepted practice for years and having the cars go around and all that sort of stuff, it still should have finished under safety car because the safety car needs to do a clear lap with those guys catching up. Okay, point two. So by changing it all completely, the race director went away from accepted practice, which was accepted practice up and down the pit lane. It's not something reinvented. And therefore, by him doing that, the race was manipulated. By the race being manipulated, Lewis Hamilton did not win a race he should have won. Now, I, I really, I quite wanted Verstappen to win because it needed to shake up a little bit. But by interference in normal practice, it disadvantaged one driver who him and his team could have accepted and expected that the normal practice would be carrying on as if it was any other race in the season. The mere fact that somebody wanted it to finish as a race instead of under a safety car because it was a championship, in my opinion, is is changing the whole ethos of motor racing because that's what you've done all the way up to now. Just because you want to make a show, why should you ruin other people's show? I, I'm very uncomfortable with the fact that it happened. But I don't think Lewis Hamilton, and I'm sure he's very uncomfortable, I don't think he would not come back because of that. I think he might not come back because um, the new FIA president within a day of being elected said there will be severe penalties on Lewis Hamilton for not appearing at the FIA prize giving, which is compulsory. There will be severe penalties. Well, if I was Lewis Hamilton, I'd say, stick your penalties, pal. I ain't coming back. You know, that was a mistake for him to say that. Um, so adding all those things together, I think it's still 50-50 whether he comes back at all. It doesn't need to, does wow. it? Aussies listening to the podcast would, would counterbalance. I mean, you've said it a bit in your in your answer, but the intent, I think, was to, to race to the finish yes. of a championship, wasn't yeah. it? You know, yeah. yeah. But so. why, why should you finish – why should you change accepted practice just to finish the, mm. the, It was obvious what was going to happen at the finish. Mm. It was obvious. I mean, there was no alternative for Lewis Hamilton do, to do what Max Verstappen did. If he'd have come in, he would have been behind Verstappen anyway. Uh, there was no alternative. So I, I just think the race should have been either stopped dead so they have two laps of racing. Everybody comes in, changes tyres if they want to, like they could, and then have a race. You know, get all the all the um, get it ironed out. Get it mm. ironed out. Put mm. put all the car if you want to change the regulations so that everybody comes in. They can change tyres and everybody goes out in the order they should be. In other words, first, second, third, fourth, and the back markers go out last. That would be a good way to do it, but somebody would have to make that rule as well. So I'm, I'm just uncomfortable the way it finished. I can appreciate Max Verstappen being world champion, fine, but I just don't think it finished properly, in my opinion. Okay, that's your that's your view, and you're you're, you're absolutely um, entitled to it. Quickly, McLaren now world's changed. You're you're you know Ron's not there. You're not there. What do you think of of uh, the McLaren that we have now, and and um, you know, their chances of getting back to the greatness that we, we know them for, that, that you went through? Well, Ron isn't there, so it's a different kettle of fish. They, McLaren, obviously, when Zach Brown went in there, he faced lots of challenges because there were, there were deficits all over the place of McLaren financially. I mean, the payout to Ron Dennis alone was quite a lot of money, um, about half as much as he was fined by Max Mosley some years mm. before. Mm. Uh, so Zach Brown has done an amazing job to get those ducks in a row because the Honda engine was a disaster. Mm -hmm. But if they'd have kept it, it would have been successful, one assumes. But they couldn't keep it because they'd already been a disaster for too long. Uh, so 
I, I think he's done an amazing job. I didn't think he would. I knew Zach Brown before okay. and he was a good um, marketer mm -hmm. and he was a good sponsor finder and he used to work with McLaren quite a lot, sp mm. finding sponsors. Um, so I'm, I'm really pleased to see them improve and I'm pleased to see them improve with the Mercedes engine. Still a customer, mm. uh, so the winning a championship is going to be difficult. But when you think what they did last year without any possible tokens of improving the car, because all their tokens to improve the car were spent on just changing the engine. Mm. Uh, so they weren't able to develop a car. Mm. So you look forward to the fact that now with everybody on a clean sheet of paper, they can develop a car that is, is worthy of, of winning a race. They've got the drivers once Danny Ricciardo gets A into G uh, because he's more than capable of winning race. Well, he's won a race, Agreed. obviously. Yeah. Uh, he's more than capable of being there and winning races. Lando Nor Norris clearly is because he nearly did in Russia. So, yeah, I mean, what, what other elements do they need? They're financially, you would assume, stable. Hmm. They've got damn good designers, got a perfect engine, was last year, and they've got fantastic drivers. So all the elements are there. Whether yeah. you can put it all together, it's like the old jigsaw that you've missed one piece missing. You've got to get that last piece in there and hopefully they've got that. Yeah, I agree on the ingredient side of it. Very true. Netflix do you like Drive to Survive? Are you an avid watcher? Is it over-dramatised, as some people say? What I, do you think? I didn't watch it the first year at all. Okay. I thought, no, this is ridiculous. Because my kids are this. addicted to it. I know. Yeah, I know. Look, I, and then the second year, somebody said, you got to see it. And I said, oh, I don't want to see it. And I watched the first year and I thought, actually, it's quite funny because you could see that people were playing it. I've, I've been in those offices and you could see that people were playing it up. And yeah, I'll watch it as soon as it comes out this year. I really will. Uh, whatever it is, it's made Formula One into um, into an entertainment more so. Now, whether the entertainment is aspect overrides the sporting aspect, that's another thing, but this is the way people are. You've got to have entertainment, and it is. It's good. A couple of questions from your, your colleague, my friend, Dave Turner. Going to Indy, what did you guys get up to? <laughs> oh, yeah, right. <laughs> um, yeah, we did quite a lot of uh, stuff. The Indy trips, I forget how many. We, I think I've been to Indy about 20 times now, uh, many times with David Turner making... TV shows. Yeah. Uh, what did we get up to? Uh, I think we better probably get back to the James Hunt days there. <laughs> okay. Um, no, no, it was uh, it, it was great fun with David Turner. A superb television producer he is um, and director. Um, I still do podcast or with vidcast him. with yeah. him now. Uh, yeah, what did we get up to? We had fun, uh, but we worked hard. I yeah. mean, we were. Yeah, we worked hard. Now, that naturally leads me to the transition to, to media. I mean, you, you do regularly comment on all sorts of things um, motorsport-wise on, on radio. You just talked about the stuff with Dave. What got you into the media and have you enjoyed that? Clearly you have. Oh, yeah, well, I'm clearly in love with my own voice. That's the first thing. Um, and, and I can probably bullshit with the best of them. Um, but uh, I, would, I would say, well, the media thing started really when I was – I was the opposite side of the fence. I was doing all the stuff in the garage, explaining to all the guests upstairs, being amongst, you know, explaining uh, slip angles and all that sort of stuff and doing all sorts of talks uh, to people. And I was getting carried away. We were getting carried away with our own self-importance, understanding racing cars. Um, and it was and when we were doing a big presentation once and we were explaining all the sorts of stuff, you know, slip angles, all that sort of stuff. And, and we said, any questions? There were about four or 500 people, sponsors there. And somebody in the front put her hand up and she said, yeah, can you tell me why a tyre's black? And suddenly we realised that we were so far up ourselves explaining 
all the intricacies of a racing car. And it was interesting. All the blokes are going, yeah, 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 we understand it, yeah, yeah. But the girls had no idea. So we simplified everything and it was a joy to actually get back to basics, you know, showing a picture when they were taking on 80 kilos of fuel of a car stopping. We had it animated, car stopping and a bloke jumping on the back, sitting on the engine cover. There's 80 kilos are taking away. So things like that. And then it was my job to keep the press out of, uh, of McLaren, mm. completely away. We, mm. we did not want the press all over the place. So that was extremely an extremely fun job. But when I started to um, come back here and started to talk and all sorts of stuff, then I immediately, through David Turner, actually started doing the Shell Helix program okay. and doing the commentary on Formula One with a guy called Jeff Bryant. And um, then I got involved in Toyota Racing Series and then I, I just, you know, once again, I fell in love once again with my own voice and just kept it going. You've, you've headed us in the right direction here as we get to the finish here. Firstly, was it hard to stop Formula One yes. after more than 30 years. How, yeah, did you, how did you cope with that? And tell us about that decision, that process. I, I miss it now. Do you? To be honest, every time I see it, I see, you know, the paddock, which once again, I say again, that was the, the village. village. That mm. was the my, my main street was down between the transporters and the motorhomes and the garages. Um, so, yes, I do miss it. But there comes a point where you can't be doing it when you're 90. So mm. I had to get out before I was 90. I got mm. out a long time before I was 90, <laughs> incidentally. Um and things were changing. Ron was, we were moving into that big new factory and Mika Hakkinen was retiring and Joe Ramirez was, was retiring as well. And I thought, I don't want to go into that big factory. I just don't want to go there because Ron had taken me there many times and explained, you know, these people won't be allowed here and they won't be allowed there. It's going to be sterile. And I thought, nah, it's not racing how, how I want to go. Suddenly we had turned into a corporation that went racing instead of a racing team. And um, it, it just wasn't what I wanted to do. And I wanted to come back home and, um, uh, and be in New Zealand again. And uh, well, that was it, really. I used to get a bit antsy and the America's Cup was on here. I wanted to come and get involved in that a little bit. And uh, oh, that was it. It was, it, it was time. My wife had already given up two years before. She's done. Enough for me. Okay. So, um, yeah, it became time. So go home. And you are in an ambassadorial role with Toyota Kazoo Racing, Toyota New Zealand. Yes. Um, you, I was with you the other day for an interview and you uh, rattled off a couple of, I think, really impressive stats because the, the summer series of racing here, certainly pre-COVID, has had some great young talent come through it. Mm. Drivers from this part of the world and other internationals that mm. have come and joined us. Yeah. And I think you said, if I'm, if I'm right, uh, that there are six former TRS or Toyota Racing Series drivers currently in Formula One. Is that yes, right? that's right. Amazing. Rattle off their names. I'll never remember it. Mazepin, Norris, Stroll, Latifi. Um, <laughs> I can't remember the others. Yeah, there are six. Believe me, there are six um, in there. That's a super cool endorsement of this yeah, whole but program, been, isn't it? I mean, but yeah. there have been 20 who have been involved in it. If you go to the likes of Danny Kvyat and, uh, and all the others, there have been 20 awesome. names. And there are six on the grid this year mm. that are actually through it. Oh, um, Guan Yuzhou, mm. the new driver yes. there. That makes six, was it? Five or whatever it was. So yeah, there are six. So it, it, the series itself is exceptionally valid as a, as a uh, feeder series for um, young drivers from around the world come here. Nowhere else can you drive on five different tracks, five different weekends and get more mileage in than you do in a Formula 3 season in Europe. Yeah. I mean, the t and the talent from this part of the world, across right across your time in, in Formula 1, uh, uh, Kiwis and and Aussies for the, the, the part of the world that we come from, 
typically punch very well, don't they, when they when they when they go to Europe? Yep. Uh, c- can we just we'll keep this Kiwi orientated here because we're recording this in in New Zealand? Liam Lawson. Well, uh, has all the talent at the moment. He's showing all the talent that is needed. Um, but I have to actually blow our own trumpet a little bit here. Liam Lawson was in the Toyota Racing Series. Um, but he would not have been in the Toyota Racing Series had not he come to us as a what's called the Kiwi Driver Fund. I'm one of six trustees on the Kiwi Driver Fund to an all we are in existence for. is totally independent from Toyota, completely and absolutely. All we do is try and raise money to help drivers into the Toyota Racing Series, not sponsor them completely. We, we top up their budget if they can't find the quite enough budget we top it up for them and, you know, help with an engine lease or a chassis lease. Liam freely admits to this day he would not have been in Toyota Racing Series without Kiwi Driver Fund help. Had he not been in the Toyota Racing Series, he would not have been seen by Helmut Marco. Had he not been seen by Helmut Marco, he wouldn't have graduated Formula 3 with Red Bull, Formula 2, the sports car um, champ, and possibly Formula 1 as driver. He's going to be doing some Formula 1 testing, I know. So... We we do we are intent on getting Kiwi drivers into into that um, arena. Marcus Armstrong is another one. Chelsea Herbert, who's racing here today, is another one. So probably yeah, seven, eight, nine drivers we've helped driving in Indy now or the Indy Lights and all sorts of things. So the the talent in New Zealand is not only with drivers. The talent is and in Australia very much so is with engineers going over to work for Formula One teams, IndyCar teams. You go anywhere in the world and you'll find bloody Kiwis and Aussies head down, bum up, working on race cars or managing the race teams everywhere. Um, And I think that is a testament to the entire Australasian mindset about um, how you go about racing and how you go about things. So, you know, it's just a testament to the people here. Final one. You began this podcast chat with uh, a very fond recollection of of – the mini finish for me. Have you got a little something in the garage? A, a little, you know, either resto project, something that you. Oh, I've got a resto project. Tell, me, tell moment, us about yeah. it. Come on, finish. No, I've got a. I've actually got a Harley <laughs> Davidson 1974 90cc Air Mackie thing, which I've restored twice now, because my yeah, I bought it brand new in 1974, and I've had it ever since. And my nephew learned to drive, uh, learned to ride bikes on it in a forest near us, and it's it's been destroyed completely. So it took me two years <laughs> to find all the bits for it, but that's finished. And then once again, my nephew, who is now Rodri Griffiths, who's the son of my um, the guy that took me into motorsport, he he was uh, Rodri became um, chief mechanic of the test team at McLaren. Um, after that's a completely different story because we wouldn't allow him into McLaren. He didn't have enough uh, um, qualifications, Positions, can we yeah, say? So yeah. we sent him around the world to learn them. Anyway, so he left that. He became team manager of an IndyCar team, and now he runs uh, his own company that does all the wheel guns for many of the Formula One teams, five Formula One teams. He builds the wheel guns for them. Anyway, uh, a friend of his promised him some years ago a Fiat 500 Bambina when she died. And she did die, and he got the Fiat 500 Bambina and said, can we strip it and fix it? And I said, yeah, all right, well, we'll do that. Well, it's been in my garage now for two and a half years. Um, I stripped it, and I'm just waiting for his contribution. (laughs) I'm not touching it until his contribution comes up. He's either got to be here to help me with it or pay for some of it. So it's not expensive, but, yeah, that's sitting in the garage, but no other ones. That's fantastic to chat with you, mate. The book is called, incidentally, Behind the Pit Wall, My Life in Formula One and Beyond with Bob McMurray. You can find it if you go looking at places like Amazon and so on. There are way more stories than we've covered here, I know, even – 
even, um, you know, it's been described Formula One as the Piranha Club. I'm sure there are villains and all sorts that we could, um, we could, we could cover. Mate, thank you. Well done on the work that you are doing here with the next generation. I love the walk down memory lane with some of those absolute legends of Formula One, people that you um, can very proudly call friends. And, and thank you for giving us a bit of a, a bit of a rare insight into their world. Super stuff. No, thanks, Rusty. But it's um, one of these days we'll have to do a, a podcast or a vidcast without the microphones on. And I'll tell you the real stories. <laughs> Rusty's Garage is written and presented by me, Greg Rust. Series editor and producer is Ed Gooden. Audio production by Darcy Thompson. If you've got a guest suggestion, get in touch with me via social media. The Garage. It's where a journey begins with a tank full of passion-fueled stories. Stories.